We are in a sermon series, a summer series through the book of 1 John. And today we come to a pivotal chapter in the book. I ask you to open God's Word to the book of 1 John. Glad that you're here today. Thank you for coming to be part of the Mount A family. And those of you who may be here for the first time, uh, let me say welcome to you. And I'd love to meet you at the end of the service today. 1 John chapter 3. This is a pivotal chapter in the book. In fact, it is such a pivotal chapter that in the King James Version, the first word of this chapter is the word, Behold. In the NIV, the phrase is, How great. This is a seldom used term in the Bible, and it has no precise parallel meaning in the English language. But it, it implies a reaction of astonishment. John is saying, Behold. I want you to be astonished by something. It, the, a reaction of astonishment. You know, like the first time, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, and you step to the edge of the Grand Canyon and just look down and look across, there is a reaction of astonishment by what you behold. Or if you've ever had the privilege of holding a newborn baby in your hands, your daughter or your son, and you look in the face of that little girl or that little boy, and what you behold creates in you a reaction of astonishment. That's the word that John uses to start chapter 3 in 1 John. You see, this is not one of those passages you just read through without paying much attention. This is one of those passages where you read and then you stop in amazement, trying to grasp all that you have just read. So here's what John wants to make sure you don't miss. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, as it says in the King James, or how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now notice the words, us and we. Important words in the first verse. Behold how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Think about what you were before you came to saving faith in Christ. Think about the kind of life some of you lived before you came to faith in Christ. As Johnny Hunt says, some of you were hellions. You just lived like the devil. Think about the life you had before you came to Christ. Or, think about how you now live and the struggles that you have even today in your walk with Christ. It's a challenge for our minds to comprehend how people like that could be called children of God. How we could be called children of God. It's astonishing to think about. I mean, look, what, look how he says it again. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, that we, people like you and I, should be called children of God. Now, I could understand if he called us slaves of God. We still wouldn't be worthy of that title, would we? But, but we could kind of wrap our minds around the fact that we're slaves of God. Or, you could perhaps raise it a notch and say, well, you know, I would be somewhat comfortable with the term servants of God. Because I love Him, I don't want to serve Him. And, and servants of God would be somewhat acceptable to us and understandable to us. But that's not what He called you. John says, there is something I want you to be astonished by. There is something I want you to be amazed about. Behold, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we 
should be called children of God. You see, if we were simply servants of God, we could not call Him Father. The reason we can call Him our Heavenly Father is because we are children of God. And in the first verse of this pivotal chapter, John uses that word behold, or stop and think about this. Let these words astonish you. And here's how he describes it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I love that word lavished on us. The word lavished has the idea of of an outpouring love. You you know, for example, uh, the love that you have for your spouse if, you, if you're married, you, the love that you have for your husband, the love that you have for your wife, you know how deep that love is. You know how, how, how exciting that love is. You, you, you know how much you just love that person. I want to tell you something. That pales in comparison to the love God has for you. Or if you're a parent, think about how much you love that child or your children. And you do anything for them. I mean, you would literally die for them, wouldn't you? Because your love is so compelling. Your love is so rich for your child. Your, your love is so deep for your child. That pales in comparison to the love that the Heavenly Father has for you. Well, for some of you who are grandparents, how many grandparents do we have here today? Raise your hand if you're a grandparent. Be proud of it. Come on. Be proud of it. Yeah. If you're a grandparent, you know that you lavish love on your grandkids, don't you? You, you just want to hold them and squeeze them. I mean, you pick them up. You just want to squeeze them. And you buy them everything that they want. You lavish love on them. And that pales in comparison to the love the Heavenly Father has lavished on you. That's why John started this text with the word, Behold, be astonished and amazed at this truth. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we, people like you and I, should be called children of God. Then he says, and that is what we are. That is what we are. That in present tense, right now, is what we are. You see, you should never lose the wonder of being part of God's eternal family. And we've got this mindset that one day we're going to be a child of God when we go to heaven. Or one day we'll be a child of God when we kind of get our act together. John says, no, that's not true. That is what you are right now. You are a child of God. John reassures us that you're not becoming a child of God It's not one day you're going to be a child of God. He says you are a child of God. Look at verse 2 and 3. Dear friends, now are we children of God. Right now. Well, what about heaven? Well, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who has this hope in Him This hope, this relationship with Jesus Christ purifies himself because he, that is Jesus, is pure. Now don't be misled by that word hope. The word hope that you see there is, John is not referring to a wishy-washy, fingers crossed, I hope it happens kind of an attitude. The word hope here, it's the Greek word, refers to a certainty and an expectancy. John is saying that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you become clean and pure before God, and you are a child of God And in fact, the change is so dramatic, so permanent, that it is referred to in these terms, you are born again. 
That's how dramatic the change is. Are you listening to me? Look at me if you're listening to me. You are, the change is so dramatic. You have been born again. You are now a child of God. Now, all of that is foundational to what he's going to tell us in verses 4 through 10. You see, in the first three verses, John is making the case that something radical has happened to you if you are a Christian. Something so radical that, that you are now part of God's family. Something radical has happened to you if you, if you are a Christian. You see, listen, listen. You're, if you're a Christian, you're not just a good person who happens to go to church, who happens to believe in God, and who got baptized. If you are a Christian... You are someone in whom something radical has happened in your life, and now you are a child of God. Can somebody say amen to that? That is your identity. John chapter 1, listen, verse 12 and 13. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, or of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. That's your identity. That's who you are. So in verses 4 through 10, John raises a very troubling question. Based on who you are, a child of God, here's the troubling question. How do people who have experienced the miracle of new birth deal with their own sinfulness? Or could I be a little bit more blunt? Can you be a child of God and live like the devil. How do you deal with the conflict between being a child of a holy God and our tendency to sin? That's what he's struggling with here in these verses. Throughout the letter, John gives us several tests. You know this already, but throughout the letter, several times throughout the letter, John gives us a test to say, this is how you know if you're saved. This is how you know if you know Him. Here's one of the ways that you can test your faith to see if it's real, to see if it's valid. John does that several times throughout his letter, and this is one of the places. This is one of the places where John says, okay, here's a test. Here's how you can test your faith. Here's how you can determine if you really are saved. Here's the test. I could summarize, summarize it for you this way. If you really are saved, John is going to tell us, if you really are saved, there ought to be some resemblance to your Heavenly Father. Your life should have some resemblance to the one you call your Heavenly Father. Now, more than once, my daughter Kelly is here today. Her and Morgan came in, so glad to see them. Hadn't seen them in a couple of months. My daughter Kelly, uh, I'm not going to embarrass her to ask her to come stand up beside me, but several times, many times, People have looked at Kelly and I when we're standing together, and they have said something like this, Well, you sure can't deny that one. She looks just like you. Same thing's been said about Lauren and Lisa. So, boy, Lauren looks so much like her mama. Same thing said about Jonathan and his grandfather. You can show pictures of Jonathan and, and his grandfather at approximately the same age, and it looks like almost the same person. You see, whenever there is family resemblance it is evidence that there is family relationship what john is going to tell us in verses 6 through 10 
or verse 5 through 10, John is going to say, this is who you are. You are a child of God. But, if that's who you really are, if that is your identity, there ought to be some family resemblance to your heavenly Father who is holy. So let's read the text. Uh, let, me, let me just warn you. Can I, can I go ahead and just put out this warning? What you're about to read might scare some of you. What you're about to read is going to be troubling to some of you. John is going to say in verses 4 through 10, the way that you are living shows whether you are a child of God or a child of the devil. Those who truly know God as Father will seek to live a life of holiness. Now, I'm not saying that you will be sinless, but you ought to sin less than you did before you came to faith in Christ. I'm not saying that you'll be perfect, but there ought to be a desire to live a life of purity. John is going to tell us in verses 4 through 10, because of who you are, verses 1 through 3, because of your identity, you're a child of God. Verses 4 through 10, he'll say, because of who you are, there ought to be a difference in the way that you live. So let's read the text. Verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one, everybody say no one. No one who is born of God will continue to sin Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. These verses reveal some vital truths about sin that you and I desperately need to understand. John tells us three things about sin. First of all, he tells us what sin is. He tells us that in verse 4. John defines sin as lawlessness. Verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. The word lawlessness by definition means defiance. Defiance. Now back before there were car seats, some of you are going to have a hard time imagining this, but back before there were car seats, little kids used to ride in the front seat. Do you remember that? Some of you remember that? In fact, little kids sometimes would stand up in the front seat. How in the world did we survive? I don't know, but do you remember that? Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah well, you put your arm across it, right? That's what you did. Well, true story. I, th- I think it's a true story. Back in the day when little kids were riding in the front seat, this little girl was standing up in the front seat. And her name was Judy. And her dad told her, Judy, sit down. And Judy ignored her or, or ignored him. They were driving a little bit longer, and he looked over. She's still standing up. He said, Judy, sit down. And she ignored him again. Third time he looked over there, she's still standing up. He said, Judy, sit down, or I'm going to spank you. She slowly slid her way down into the seat. 
And then she said kind of quietly, but I'm still standing up on the inside. (laughs) That is defiance. That is lawlessness. That is sin. And that is what we do to God. We know what God says. We hear what God says. We know what God means. And we defiantly disobey Him. John describes, this is what sin is. Sin is when you hear what God says and you defiantly ignore Him. William Barclay said, sin is to obey oneself rather than to obey God. Well, that's a great definition. Sin is to obey your own desires rather than to obey God's desires. So he tells us, first of all, in verse 4, what sin is. Then, he's building a case here. He says, let me tell you what Jesus did to sin. What Jesus did to sin. John gives two reasons why Jesus came and died. One is in verse 5 and the other is in verse 8. Both of these reasons describe what Jesus did to sin. Verse 5. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. He appeared, John says, Jesus appeared to take away our sins. That word take away is a beautiful word in the original language. It literally means to lift up and to remove. To lift up and to take away. To lift it off of you and carry it away from you. To remove it from you. Aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus Christ can take away your sin? He can take away what you can't get away from. So here's the first reason Jesus came. The Bible says He came to take away our sin. Now here's the second reason that He came in verse 8. Here's what He says. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then notice this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Was to destroy the devil's work. The word destroy does not mean to annihilate the devil. Rather, it means to render inoperative. To rob him of his power. John is simply saying we do not have to be slaves to sin because Satan is a defeated foe. And if you've been truly saved, the the devil no longer has power over you. If you've been truly saved, I want you to know something. Somebody ought to say amen. If you've been truly saved... The Lord Jesus Christ has given you power over the devil. Let me show it to you. Go to Hebrews. Go over to the left. A couple of books to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's you you and I, he too, Jesus shared in their humanity, so that by His death, He might... What's that next word? Destroy Him who holds the power of death. He did not obliterate Him. He did not annihilate Him. He robbed Him of His power. He rendered Him inoperative. That's what the word means. Who holds the po- by His death, He might destroy Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. We now have the power. 
we now have the ability to say no to temptation. When it comes knocking on our door, we now have the ability and the power to say, no, I don't want to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. John's building a case. And John says, I want to tell you, first of all, what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. It's defiance. It's rebellion against God. Number two, not only do I want to tell you what sin is, I want to tell you what Jesus did to sin. Jesus came to lift it off of you and take it away, and He came then to destroy the one who is tempting you to sin, to give you power over the one who is tempting you to sin. And then here's the heart of the argument. He says, number three, sin is incompatible with those who know Jesus. The third thing John tells us about sin in this text is sin is incompatible with those who know Jesus. I looked up the word incompatible. It means to be so opposed in character as to be incapable of existing together. You're familiar with this word as far as in divorce courts. People go into the divorce court and say, we're just incompatible. We're incapable of living together. That's what they say. Or you're familiar with this word in the world of computers. Uh, You buy this software and you install it, and this little box pops up on your screen that says, this software is incompatible with your operating system. It's just not going to work. These two things do not work together. They are incompatible. Or you go to the doctor, he says, now I want you to list all the medicines that you're on. And the reason he does that is not because he's nosy, or she's nosy. The reason he or she does that is because when they prescribe a medication to you, they want to make sure that it is compatible with the other medicines you're taking. They don't want to give you a medicine that is incompatible with what you're taking so that those medicines are working against one another. You see, Satan wants you to think, listen, Satan wants you to think that you can live in sin and still know God. But the Bible says those two things are incompatible. You can't live in sin continuously and say that you know a holy God. You can't live in sin continuously and say that Jesus Christ lives in you. John says those things are incompatible. They don't go together. In fact, we're going to read it. Back in 1 John, we're going to start in verse 5. I'm going to read it slowly, and I'm going to warn you again. What you're about to read could be shocking. What you're about to read could be scary and disturbing, but it is true. Chapter 3, verse 5. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him is what? No sin. That's why it's incompatible that you could say, I can live in sin and still know Jesus. Keep reading. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as He is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous is what that means. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Hmm. No one who is born of God, everybody say no one. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. 
he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. He is a child of God now. He cannot go on sinning. He is a child of the holy God. He is part of God's holy, eternal family. He cannot go on sinning if he's born, born of God. Verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So the question that John raises as he's building this case is this question. Will a person who has genuinely accepted Christ sin? Some people teach, based on these verses, some people teach that these verses mean that once you are really saved, you stop sinning. That would be a contradiction to what John's already said in this letter. You remember what he said in this letter in chapter 1, verse 8? In chapter 1, verse 8, John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's talking to Christians. And he says, if we claim that we no longer sin because we are now Christians, he said, the truth is not, we're lying, the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins because we're going to sin, we're going to mess up, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. So apparently what John is talking about in chapter 3, verses 5 through 10 is not that you will be uh, perfect once you come to faith in Christ. That's not what he means. I want you to look at the words in verse 5. I believe it's verse 5. Look at the words, no, verse 6. Look at the words, lives in him and keeps on sinning. Verse 6. No one who lives in him, lives in him is in the present tense, continuous action in the original language. No one who lives in him, present tense, continuous action. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. The phrase keeps on sinning is also present tense, continuous action. A good translation would be this. Whoever keeps on abiding in Jesus does not keep on sinning, sinning, and sinning. Did you hear that? Whoever keeps on abiding in Jesus does not keep on sinning, sinning, and sinning. Now, I know that you're sitting there and you're saying, Pastor Keith, my brain's hurting. I'm trying to figure this out. Because I believe that I'm saved but I know that I sin. In fact, yesterday I had to ask the Lord to forgive me for something. And, and, and now I'm real confused about what all of this means. Let me be very, very clear. And very, very blunt. John is simply saying that the person who has accepted Christ does not make a practice of habitual, continual sin. The person who has accepted Christ the person who really is a child of God, is not comfortable living in sin. Let me be clear. No Christian is sinless. None of us are. As a matter of fact, if you look in your Bible, every great personality of the Bible except Jesus had a sin problem. Abraham lied about his wife. Moses lost his temper and did some things in disobedience to God. Peter cursed and denied that he knew Jesus. But, when you look at these examples, sin was not a way of life for them. Sin was an occasional stumble. 
It was not something they were living in. It was something that they experienced from time to time. Sin was, was occasional, not habitual. John says that whoever sins habitually and continually and feels no conviction does not know God personally. It's plain as I can say it. The logic is clear. A man who knows God obeys God. A man who does not obey God is obeying the devil. He says it right verse 7 and 8. Look at it. Dear children, let no one deceive you. Let no one lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. If you know God, you're going to obey Him. Verse 8, He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Like father, like son. Whose son do you look like? Whose son do you most resemble? No one, verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue present tense, continuous action, an ongoing habit to sin. Because God's seed, God's holy seed, remains in Him. He cannot go on sinning because, because He has been born of God. You cannot tell me that you can live in sin Month after month, year after year. Comfortable with it, not convicted by it, but claiming somewhere back there that you you had some experience with God. Somewhere back there when you were little, you got baptized. Somewhere back there you got wet and you joined the church. You cannot tell me that you know God if you continually live in sin, continuous action, and feel no conviction by it. He says in the first three verses, You are a child of God. Something so radical has happened to you. You're not just a good person. You are a child of God. Then he says in verses 4 through 10, And if you are the child of God, there ought to be some family resemblance. Let's pray about that. Really, this with every head bowed, every eye closed, the the test of a true follower of Jesus. John says in verse 7, is your life. He, to do, he who does what is right is righteous. It's your life. That's, that's the proof. And he says in verse 8, the test of a sinner is your life. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. John is issuing you and me a call to personal holiness. As a Christian, as a Christian, you are a child of a holy God. And and Jesus came to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. That's why sin is incompatible with knowing Jesus. We all sin from time to time. That's 1 John 1.9. We claim His forgiveness. We all struggle from time to time. What we're talking about today is that ongoing habitual practice of defying God, ignoring God, and then believing somehow you know Him. John says it's incompatible. Incompatible for you to say that you know the Holy God, but you're comfortable living in sin. So I'm going to ask you today, to examine your life 
And perhaps you need to be saved today. Perhaps today is the day that you need to practice Acts chapter 3, verse 19. It's a beautiful verse that says this, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that as we examine our lives, if somebody needs to be saved to truly be born again, I pray that you would show them that today, Lord. Show them that they're lost. Only you know that, Father. But if that's the case, would you show them their lostness? And I pray that they would turn from their sin and turn to the one who can save them from their sin. And Father, if, if any of us who do know you as Savior need to practice 1 John 1, nine and confess our sin to you where we have stumbled, where we have gotten away from you, I pray, Lord, you'd hear our prayer and restore and renew us again in our walk with you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.